Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In any realistic climate scenario, many, many more of us are going to be riding transit in the Bay Area. Electric vehicles are great, but there are crucial limitations to replacing all of our cars with EVs. And yet, here in the most liberal place in America, our transit systems are in serious trouble. The financial foundations of many of our region's transportation agencies were already cracked, And when COVID delivered its mighty blow to ridership, particularly in and out of San Francisco, the whole structure began to collapse. Federal emergency dollars have kept things going, but they'll be running out in the next few years. And then what? We'll talk about the shape transit agencies are in and what needs to happen to save them. That's all coming up after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We all know that San Francisco's downtown remains pretty empty. And if fewer workers have to go in, that's bad for transit systems that were designed to shuttle workers into the central business district. And that's surely having a negative impact on transit ridership. But we've got to begin our examination of the Bay Area's transit system with a cold, hard fact. According to the Metropolitan Transportation Commission, 90% of the pre-pandemic traffic has returned to the Bay Bridge, but BART ridership is hovering below 40% of pre-COVID numbers, and every transit system is way down. That is to say, it's not just people working from home. So right here at the top, we want to hear from you. If you used to be a transit rider, but you aren't anymore, why? Does your car feel safer from a COVID or flu exposure standpoint? Do you have safety concerns? What needs to change for you to be lured back to transit? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Why don't you ride transit? Why are you in your car right now listening on the radio rather than uh, on a BART train or on a bus? The email is forum at kqed.org. Here to talk with us about these Bay Area transit troubles we're joined by Dan Brecky, longtime editor and reporter with KQED News. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Alexis. So great to talk with you. We're also joined by Therese McMillan, executive director of the Metropolitan Transportation Commission and the Association of Bay Area Governments. Welcome, Therese. Thank you. It's good to be here. That's great. Um, Dan, start us off with just a little primer on Bay Area transit, it feels like the standout part of our Bay Area transit system is how fragmented it really is among different agencies and and areas. Well, you know, you uh, summarized things um, so well at the top and in the, the billboard before the show. I mean, 
I think at this point, everybody knows that transit is way down, um, you know, from the pandemic, the various uh, effects of the pandemic, and that it's really not coming back uh, at anything like the speed that uh, the agencies hope for or believe might happen, um, you know, immediately after the pandemic started. Um, as far as you know, our transit system goes, I mean, we're famously fragmented, as you said. I mean, there are 27 different agencies. Um, you know, the 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 big big ones in the uh, in the Bay Area are uh, at San Francisco Muni and BART, and followed by AC Transit and uh, Valley Transportation Authority, uh, Golden Gate Transit, SamTrans, um, Caltrain. And they're all suffering. I mean, of, of all the agencies I just mentioned, uh, SamTrans is the one that actually has the highest return to ridership of something like 60% of its pre-pandemic level. Um, Muni is at, at about 58%. Um, others are, are lagging behind, although AC Transit has, um, has nudged into the 60% range and, and uh, is close to where uh, SamTrans is. Uh, BART, as you mentioned, um, you know, actually had uh, an encouraging bump in ridership uh, late in the summer, early in the fall, and then has been in what I would call a bit of a funk since then. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I think you actually touched on something that um, it's, you know, this is more than just the pandemic. It's more than just uh, what's happening with um, work life, although um, work life is a really big part of, of these low numbers that we're seeing. I do think that there is a, an uncaptured um, subjective reluctance to go back to the way things were. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, if you rode BART during the peak of BART's ridership, which was actually several several years before the pandemic, you know, you would be uh, subjected to something they call crush loads during the uh, the rush hour, and um, that was not a pleasant experience. And then all of a sudden, we were given an option not to do that. I mean, those of us who are privileged uh, to not have to make that commute every day, whose job isn't mm -hmm. something that requires our presence. We had yeah. suddenly had a choice, and we're slow going back. So anyway, that's my my overview, and I and I think there's a a lot to say about the human aspect of this. Yeah, Therese, I mean, your organizations basically exist to try to take this fragmented system and create kind of connective tissue between it all, so that it can all work as one uh, body. From your perspective, looking across all these transit agencies. What do you think is the single most important thing that needs to be done to to bring these systems back into alignment, the ridership, the service, and, and just basic functioning? Right. <clears throat> well, I think the first thing we need to do is try to understand what are the essential factors that... Um, Cause not only cause not only the ridership decline that we've seen, but the different patterns of the recovery also mm -hmm. that we've seen. Because it's important to recognize it's not a uniform, you know, decline in ridership. You know, across all twenty-seven transit agencies, at this point we're at um, 
you know, 53% of what we call pre-pandemic levels, right? Mm -hmm. But the pattern on our rail systems versus our bus systems, for example, is different. Um, in general, our bus systems uh, came back, and this is big bus systems like AC Transit, and of course, the uh, significant presence of, of buses at Muni, but also, um, you know, our smaller bus systems in our more outlying suburban areas. And they are hovering around that 60% mm -hmm. level. And in large part, that's because our transit, what we term our transit dependent populations, people who don't have cars and don't have other options, were more concentrated on the bus systems. Mm -hmm. And so a crucial part of our um, our overall regional approach to, to the question that you posed, Alexis, is first and foremost, we need to ensure that we are protecting and providing services to those who most need it, mm. to the folks who don't have those choices. You know, what are we doing to ensure that a basic core service is available to them? So that's number one. Yeah. And then the second point, though, is to ask that question for folks who have a choice and or have not been riding transit, you know, what are the reasons for that? And quite frankly, we knew of some critical coordination issues, even in advance of COVID. Um, we were aware that our you mean like um, the links between transportation systems by its exactly right? yeah. like for yes, it's. If you need to travel from point A to point B and you need to do that over a fairly long distance, that can mean, you know, using two to three systems on transit. And that uh, has going is not going to be a very attractive trip if transfers aren't timed, if um, the fares that you need to pay on the various systems aren't clear and cumulatively are really expensive. Um, if you don't have wayfinding and mapping that shows how right. you connect between these different systems. So those are the three main areas that we heard. Let's you bring know, in that, our, our oh, oh, yeah, no, I, and I, I thank you for that, Therese. Really appreciate this, the, the overall perspective there. I want to just bring in our first rider perspective, uh, Daniel and San Rafael, welcome. Hi, yes. Um, as a newly graduate in the city, um, I find it very hard to find transportation from Marin into the city besides gold. Ferries are increasingly getting their fares higher and higher, and I'm just finding it harder for me to not use my car, which has been the most reliable source of transportation besides taking, you know, the buses or ferries. And it's just, you know, with everything going on, I just feel like there has to be a better way for me to get, you know, in and out of the city you know, before eight and after five. So that's yeah. just my little, you know, thing. <laughs> yeah, no, really appreciate that. Daniel in, in San Rafael, just with, uh, you know, Dan Brecky, everybody is kind of making this trade-off. You know, everyone everyone who has the option of using a car, or accessing a car in some way, is, is sort of saying speed, reliability, all these different times, types of, um, of trade-offs that come with these different transportation modes. Well, that's true. Uh, I would also say that that's really been true for a, a very long time. I mean, it's, it's sort of woven into our history. 
I think um, we do know that uh, the Bay Area has one of the better transit systems in the major urban areas of the United States. But um, uh, if you break it down to uh, the percentage of people who drive solo into work um, before the pandemic, it was something like uh, 65% of commuters were driving solo to work mm -hmm. on their commutes. Um, the percentage of people actually taking transit uh, on that commute was uh, in the low teens. And, and, and so that's kind of our the, the lifestyle we have. I mean, you alluded to something actually earlier um, about uh, the state's climate goals and um, the, the need going forward to really, um, you know, switch to transit, at least for commute trips. And that is actually something that's really woven into the state's climate goals, and it's expressed in terms of vehicle miles traveled. And... Um, to meet the state's climate goals, there's going to have to be a fairly serious reduction in, in these vehicle miles traveled, which means the cumulative number of miles people are actually driving. Right. And it doesn't matter whether it's, it's gasoline cars or electric cars. All that, that total mileage has to go down. And so, you know, looking at this history uh, that we have and the need going forward, yeah, uh, the the things that uh, Therese McMillan was just talking about are really, really essential. And I think a lot of it is is comes down to marketing, in a sense, uh, <laughs> how we're going to convince people that this is something that they need to do and and marketing yeah. is they want to do. We're talking about the existential crisis facing various Bay Area transit agencies with Dan Brecky, editor and reporter at KQED News, and Therese McMillan, executive director with Metropolitan Transportation Commission and the Association of Bay Area Governments. We're also going to take your uh, calls this morning. I already started. I'm going to get to this more after the break. Why are you or why aren't you riding transit? The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure... The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the COVID-induced as well as the structural problems of Bay Area Transit Agencies with Therese McMillan, Executive Director of the Metropolitan Transportation Commission and the Association of Bay Area Governments, and Dan Brecky, Editor and Reporter with KQED News. We uh, have a really interesting call on the line. Chris in Oakland's on the Board of Directors of AC Transit. Welcome. Uh, thank you. 
Um, I want to expand on Teresa's point. She, she largely made the point that I called in about. But your introduction made it sound like the only thing transportation does is provide commute transportation into the San Francisco Central Business District. And AC Transit does that. We have trans-based service. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of our service is people who need to get around the East Bay. And 40% of those people who get around the East Bay do not have a car available for that trip. About 60% of them are very low or extremely low income. And that shows up in the fact that our local service is back to about 70% of pre-pandemic, while our trans-bay service, even though we've put back 55% of it because of the way it's, it's interlined with our school service, only has about 30% hmm. of our previous ridership. Yeah. But it, it's important to acknowledge Teresa's point that there are many different functions of transit, and it's important to recognize the the various parts of them. Yeah. You know, um, Chris, as you consider the future of AC Transit then, do these numbers make you think differently about the future of planning the, the, the system, or is it kind of in line with how you were seeing things before the pandemic? Oh, it, it absolutely is not in line. And we had already planned a major planning effort. We do that about every 10 years. We, we restructure all our routes. And we're going to start uh, a very large public process um, in about three months to restructure all our lines, looking at what happens in, in we, we would start that restructuring in 24. We'd start the service for that restructuring. And one of the big questions we're going to ask is how do we react to the fact that to the extent that service to the San Francisco Central Business District um, is probably going to increase over the next two or three years, but it's only going to be two or three days a week. Mm. Uh, very few people are going to come back to working five days a week, whereas the people who we're transporting locally are what we now call essential workers. They're our drivers. They're our mechanics. They're people who work in grocery stores. They're um, people who work in hospitals. Those people can't phone it in. They, they, they can't work remotely. So we are pretty confident that that service is going to continue to increase the way it did pre-pandemic, whereas the lawyers, the bankers, the engineers who are going in to work in the San Francisco Central Business District, the, the, the computer programmers, um, they can work from home. And that home can be in Oakland and it can be in Idaho. Um, and so that's, we're, we're all trying to read our crystal balls and figure out how that's going to work out. Yeah. Thank you so much for that, uh, call Chris from AC Transit, just, you know, call, calling attention to the you know crucial kind of equity components of, uh, of transit across the, the, the region, you know, um, Therese McMillan with, uh, MTC and Association of Bay Area Governments, you know, we're talking about the, uh, planning exercises, 
Um, well, one of those planning exercises um, required transit agencies all to sort of submit some hypotheticals to your uh, agency about sort of how they might deal with the, the next five years of uh, fiscal scenarios. In November, the San Jose Mercury News then published a story based on those um, in which they kind of described them as kind of the doomsday scenarios for for the transit agencies. Um, how serious do you think the problems like, you know, when, when we say, tell listeners, OK, ridership is down 50 percent. Does that mean that the transit agency is in a death spiral? Does that mean that the transit agency is going to be fine if ridership pops back? Like, what? how big of a deal are these ridership declines, as well as the other issues that we've been pointing out? You know, it, it, it depends. Um, and I know that probably sounds immediately like a, a hedge, but I think what's really critical about planning in this uncertainty is that, and you know, Chris mentioned it in his comp, no one has the crystal ball, right? And so when we asked our transit operators to do what we call scenario planning, it was to take that cool-eyed analytical look of if ridership, you know, is only going to be 50% of what it was before the pandemic, if it's, you know, 75%, if it's 90, what, what does that look like? And what does it mean for you, particularly financially? And that's, Alexis, where also things aren't uniform. Transit now has never paid for itself. Mm -hmm. It depends on um, subsidies of, of some level and also where the core revenue is coming from. So for transit operators where fare revenue was very dominant, the BART's um, you know, in, in Bart's case, in Caltrain's case, Golden Gate, the, the ferry system, the loss of ridership resulted, you know, from the pandemic, you know, resulted in this significant hole in their operating budgets. Mm -hmm. And if ridership does not come back, that revenue source, which used to be very stable and predictable, suddenly is not. For transit systems, on the other hand, and a number of our bus systems are this way, VTA as an example, that relied on sales tax revenue, which is a dominant um, uh, subsidy for, for transit operators. To the degree that our economy, and largely except for places like downtown San Francisco and the like, where things are still shaky in, in that recovery, um, sales taxes are, are coming back. And so that revenue source is um, is is a much more uh, stable foundation that's restored, right? So then, so the question of what happens if ridership does or doesn't come back has to be paired with the financial you know, structure of the agency. the financial yeah. structure of the transit agency. Well, let me. Can I ask you this, Teresa, on on this question? How? Do our Bay Area transit agencies sort of financial structures stack up versus the other cities with like, you know, large uh, transportation systems, you know, like your New York, your Washington? Do we get more or less money from uh, understanding that it's heterogeneous across the different transit agencies, but taken as a whole, how does our transit agency stack up versus getting fares versus, you know, taxes that then mm -hmm. subsidize the system? Yeah. Um, well, in California, 
um, sales taxes tend to be a very dominant source. So LA Metro, uh, Los Angeles Metro, for example, huge part of their uh, operating budget uh, is sales taxes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, again, as a result of that, they've been able to come back on their feet financially. Um, you know, again, I, I believe they're maybe at a 60% level in climbing on ridership, but, um, you know, they they are in a, in a better shape from that perspective. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of these figures off the top of my head, but New York, for example, is a, by far the largest system, um, you know, in the country in terms of ridership levels. A, a lot of their funding came from fares. So, um, mm -hmm. yeah. So it, again, it's it's very reflective of the local, you know, econ economic environments um, that each transit agency has. And I think that's why, frankly, at the national level, um, the unprecedented uh, congressional support that we got, um, the emergency COVID funding, mm -hmm. literally kept the transit industry from tanking. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that that's draining and now we see that going away in the next, you know, two to three years is this fiscal cliff that we're all trying to grapple yeah. with right now. And we're going to talk more about that. I want to get a couple more uh, rider perspectives here. Uh, Chanel in San Francisco, or perhaps even trapped on the Bay Bridge right now. Hi. Yeah. Thank you for taking my call. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Okay, so I had two comments basically about BART. Um, I work remotely um, three days a week, uh, but I do come into the city at least two days a week. And I have tried intermittently. I've tried both the ferry, the Vallejo ferry, and I've also tried uh, taking BART. My complaint about BART, I have two. So one, during the pandemic, I think the new general manager, there was somebody who came on board who made all these claims about how now BART was going to be clean and disinfected and sparkling clean. And, oh, sorry, it's not. It's absolutely filthy. Spraying Lysol on a filthy surface does not make it clean. So they need to get a bucket of suds and a scrub brush and scrub the filth. You can just see the brown filth everywhere. It's just disgusting. Mm. And then my second comment is that they have designed the new trains, and this is the same for Muni. Bart and Muni have both designed the new trains to discourage vagrancy, to discourage people from, you know, lounging and sleeping on the trains. But what they've done is they've made them so unbelievably uncomfortable um, that you cannot possibly work with a laptop. You can't get comfortable. When I first started taking BART, I'm old enough to remember when BART was new, it actually had plush upholstered seats with carpet on the floor, and it was very comfortable. And I used to ride into the city, and coming home from work, I used to nod off in the chair, not laying down, just sitting because it was comfortable. So that's all. I'm okay with the carpet being comfort. gone, to be honest with you, Chanel. <laughs> I ride the BART well, all yeah, the time. Yeah, no, because it's so yeah. dirty now, but, but it yeah, wasn't. Yeah. It didn't used to be like that. But one so, can imagine that that, well, from a maintenance perspective, I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. There are really big trade-offs with the way that the BART trains have, have been redesigned. Bike riders like myself have some issues with it as well. Um, but um, thank you so much, Chanel. I, I, I appreciate your perspective. I want to get uh, one more uh, rider perspective here. Let's go uh, to uh, Suzette in Berkeley. Welcome, Suzette. 
Thank you. Good morning, and thanks for taking my call. Um, one of the things that I think is missing from this conversation is safety. Um, as a woman of color with two daughters, I think about safety in parking lots and on trains, and I do also think about the police presence and whether or not there's some aggression there or police violence. It's, it's hard not to think about Oscar Grant when I think about BART. And um, now a lot of my friends and I, when, when, whenever we talk about taking BART, safety is the number one thing mm. that we talk about. What does it feel like to be on the train? And are we going to feel safe when we arrive to the BART station? So, you know, stations matter. Safety and cleanliness, like the last person said, really does matter. It's disgusting to go into BART bathrooms. Sometimes you don't want to sit down where, you know, on the benches on the platform because they're just gross. And so if if we're going to talk about making transit more inviting, safety and cleanliness really have to be at the top of the list so that it can be more attractive to people and have the police be a little bit more engaging instead of seeming so aggressive, because not everything is meant to be addressed with aggression. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, thank you so much for, for that call, Suzette. I mean, I think lots of people think about Mia Wilson, think about Oscar Grant. There are these extremely um, heavy circumstances that, that surround Bart mm-hmm. people. Um, so, I, you know, I mean, I, I just want to keep you on the line for one second because it, it also there, there is a little bit of like a tension in that, right? Because people do want mm-hmm. things to be cleaner and they want to feel, you know, safe from people who may be acting aggressively on the, the station. Oftentimes the response might be, well, then we'll have more police there. But then there's uh, the complexity that you mentioned at the top. Yeah, I mean, I think having more police is one approach, but there are definitely other approaches to dealing with people who might be having a mental health crisis or who, you know, are just acting up. (laughs) But, But we have to have other ways to deal with those circumstances that don't just um, escalate to violence mm-hmm. so quickly. And I think that we really have to address, you know, police violence in general. But when you're talking about increasing ridership, that is something that a lot of people are talking about. And it might not be as, you know, as much at, at the discussion as, you know, transitioning from one place to another and having those connections be smooth. We're not talking about that. Yeah. We're talking about how safe do I feel at the stations and on the train. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that, uh, Suzette. I really, really appreciate your uh, your perspective all the way around. Thank you. Um, Dan uh, Brecky, you know, what I think some of these calls are, are pointing out is there was COVID, which was a, a clearly like an unprecedented and um, borderline unforeseeable event, at least within the context of, of you know, planning in an agency like this. But there are these structural issues. There are these long-term problems that people have that, that are resurfacing as reasons for them not to ride transit in the way that we need many, many more people <laughs> to do uh, because of our, our climate goals and our other environmental goals. Well, that's for sure. And and I think BART is a lightning rod agency for this. Um, it's the net, it's the uh, agency that has the, you know, the, the widest network that touches the most communities, I suppose. And, um, and, and I can tell you, even though uh, I'm not on the BART payroll, and, um, you know, I, I don't want to uh, sort of take their part, you know, BART has really made efforts in all of these areas, right? They, um, you know, they did make big efforts to try to uh, 
you know, make sure that the trains were safe, that uh, ventilate, uh, safe health-wise, that ventilation was improved, uh, filtering was improved, and they're trying to keep up with that. And um, on the policing side, yeah, the, the history is troubling, as, as um, you both just said. Um, but they have done a couple of significant things there. One is a, a, a progressive policing bureau that is actually trying to um, approach things with, uh, you know, a, I'll just call it in, in layperson's terms, a, a softer touch. There is a crisis intervention team uh, now uh, to uh, deal with people who are experiencing uh, mental health issues or um, or uh, issues surrounding uh, being unhoused on the system. And we, we've all seen uh, that uh, come up on, on BART. And um, there's also a, a, a fairly uh, serious uh, police accountability effort there to make sure that the police really are uh, behaving themselves. Now, it's, uh, it's, it's far from perfect, but I just wanted to sort of mm -hmm. yeah. you know, offer the other side. And, and I just, and last, I'll just say about the um, the upholstery and carpeting on BART, uh, if you go back a few years, it was actually about 10 years ago, we, we had a news agency here or a news site in the in the Bay Area called the Bay Citizen. And somebody there had the brilliant idea to do uh, uh, testing of what was on the surface of the upholstery, <laughs> not the carpet. Uh. And, and the, um, the story that came out of it was... Um, you know, was was hair raising and that it found that there is a lot of uh, a lot of bacteria. And the headline was on BART trains, the seats are taken by bacteria. So anyway, uh -huh. that's part of our history, too. Um, thank you, Dan. Yeah, we have a lot of uh, comments coming in as well. Uh, Denise writes, I'd feel a lot more comfortable using public transportation if masks were required. Bruce writes, the main reason I don't use transit is I'm not going into the office. However, I avoid it because of an unreliable schedule. Buses do not arrive or pass my stop early and BART trains are often canceled. That's also uh, definitely an issue that I, I have encountered as well. We're getting your comments on public transit in your life. The number is 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We're talking Bay Area Transit. Stay tuned for more. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about the existential crises facing various Bay Area transit agencies with Dan Brecky, editor and reporter with KQED News, and Therese McMillan, executive director with the Metropolitan Transportation Commission and the Association of Bay Area Governments. 
I just want to say also, I'm a Bart, regular Bart writer, and I, I, I know people find it, we're hearing people say they find it dirty and et cetera. And I, I write it all the time, and maybe my standards are too low, but I have actually had quite pleasant experiences just for, uh, for what it's worth. Um, Paul in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Yes, uh, I was a Muni driver transit operator for 33 years. Uh, people complaining about excessive police uh, intervention, probably never been a bus driver or operated a train. Uh, a muni bus is not a, a, uh, a psychological training ground. There are people who ride these buses who do not respect authority whatsoever, including the operator of the vehicle. And the only thing that seems to work with many of them is police presence. Now, on a muni bus right now, you can do just about anything you want to do. You don't have to pay the fare. You can block the aisle away. You can eat on there. You can drink on there. You can play your music device in a very loud volume and disturb everybody else. So maybe the muni needs a dedicated police force, not necessarily armed, but to have some authority and remind people what the rules are. Because on the muni bus, and I still ride them, it's anything goes, mm-hmm. and it's and it drives people from the system, and not to mention the bus stops. There's no security at the bus stops. People feel vulnerable, especially women. And I know a, a police officer was a big guy to rode a minibus recently with me, and he couldn't believe it. He says he felt intimidated by some of these individuals. So unless we have security, people are not going to ride. Yeah. Thank you for your uh, perspective, Paul. Thanks for your uh, service out there on the roads uh, for 33 years. Thank you. Uh, Therese McMillan, I mean, one of the issues that I, I think Paul is bringing up is that if you're a bus driver or any kind of transportation worker, you're also take on all these other roles of trying to sort of control the environment of the of the bus and make it safe for all the different passengers and, and comfortable and inclusive environment there. Um and it turns out that's pretty hard. And as a result, or maybe one, one, of the, one of the components in this problem, of transportation worker shortages that are actually quite extreme at a lot of agencies, right? Yes. And, you know, like several of the other issues we've talked about, there's a lot of different factors involved. Um, I think I'd open to say that this uh, question of you know, hiring and retaining a workforce for um, public transit operations is not just a Bay Area issue. It is a national issue. And, you know, a couple of things that we've we've seen, just to give you a, a sense of the, of the breadth of factors, um, in the Bay Area in particular, even before the pandemic, we had uh, challenges. Uh, transit agencies had challenges because of the cost of living. Um, you know, trying to hire folks to um, work in a system where they can't afford to live near their job, uh, you know, where is is it was a major challenge. And, and I know agencies like VTA in particular uh, felt that pressure. Um, with um, the pandemic, we had some very, uh, I think, specific um, additional challenges. There were early retirements where people could take them. Um, in trying to get back on their feet, the public health, uh, um, continuing concerns, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, played a role in making it hard to recruit, you know, folks into the workforce. 
So there does need to be um, a, a, a coordinated um, strategy across you know, the industry as to how to attract and uh, retain and build an operating environment that as our last listener, you know, commented on can be extremely challenging. Mm -hmm. And um, I would just say, and maybe we'll, you know, get to this before the end of the session. None of this is free. I mean, we need to have resources in order to underwrite um, things like the crisis intervention specialists that, you know, BART has put into effect to deal with um, uh, the mental health uh, crisis, crises right. that we've seen on our public health system. That was a major, major focus also um, at Los Angeles Metro. Um, I worked there, as you know, for, for three years and, um, you know, dealing with the homelessness and mental health crises on that system was huge. And it requires resources in order to invest and deal with that. So it's like our libraries right now. Yeah. Same, same kind of thing. You know, we, it's this, they're the places where a lot of people who are really struggling in, in society today, they go, the, the people who work in those institutions end up um, having to do, provide mental health support rather than help, you know, drive the bus or help people find books. It's very, very difficult. Um, uh, Arlinda with a really uh, important point in Oakland. Welcome. Um, I deal with disability, and we have some issues regarding making the system more friendly for the disabled. Um, the BART station, the elevators, and the escalators aren't always working. When the elevators are working, they may smell of pee. Um, you don't have um, places to sit at a lot of bus stops, or nor are they covered for rain. Um, there needs to be more disabled-friendly, and you'll get a lot more... Uh, Disabled people and seniors riding the bus mm -hmm. and the and the BART. Yeah. So that's my comment. Thank you so much, Arlinda. Really, uh, a really important point. I want to uh, let's go straight to uh, Laura in Oakland. Welcome, Laura. Hi there. Good morning. My name is Laura Tolkoff, and I'm the transportation policy director um, at. We're a nonprofit public policy organization that thinks a lot about these issues. Um, and, you know, I, I think uh, Director McMillan just started on uh, speaking about this, but, you know, this is a problem that that is especially acute in the Bay Area, but there are a lot of transit agencies in the state and the country, you know, struggling in their own way with uh, these fiscal challenges that are coming up um, and with ridership recovery. Um, if the state as a whole has really clear and ambitious climate and equity goals that are, you know, tied to the success of transit as we do, what do you think is the role that the state should play in helping mm -hmm. transit really meet this moment? Yeah. And Trace, you know, maybe you can, you can be uh, specific about this one too, because I think what we're talking about here, right, is there's going to have to be a greater subsidy to our transit systems based on taxes around some kind of district so if if that's what we're talking about in general, then is it that there should be one overall district? Is it that each transit agency is going to go it alone? Like, how do you see when we're talking about that there needs to be more funding? How do you see this actually playing out? I think it plays out in, um, I, I would say, th three distinct ways. 
you know, the, the first is to um, recognize that we are going to have to establish some kind of stable replacement source of subsidy, you know, in a broad sense, um, to fill the gap that the federal uh, emergency funding uh, had 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 done for us. Um, again, with that, you know, looking into that very cloudy <laughs> crystal ball and not knowing exactly what is going to happen with remote work and the impacts that has on travel demand for public transit, not, you know, knowing how quickly our ridership base is going to, you know, approach, um, you know, levels that we might have seen before. With all of that, we need to, to, you know, think through a subsidy source that's going to be stable and reliable. Um, and I believe that, um, you know, well, the MTC is leading an effort now to be a, build a coalition around a potential regional revenue source of some type um, to fill, you know, to, to serve that purpose. But in the meantime, um, that's going to be a hard lift if it's a, if it's something that goes to the voters, it will require a two-thirds vote. Mm -hmm. And we need to build the confidence of the voters to want to do that, um, to, to build a, um, you know, to demonstrate that we can bring transit back better and more responsive to customer needs that we've heard that it is more reliable, that we do have a more coordinated system among these 27 different transit operators, um, that, you know, whether it's fair and wayfinding such that you can, you know, travel seamlessly, we've used that term, between the different systems and that the schedules are um, timed in, you know, strategic ways for transfers that may need to be made that fares are more uniform in terms of um, their structures and intuitively clear, you know, to, to, to riders and affordable at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, we have been working with our transit operators uh, since COVID very uh, aggressively in this space and developed, you know, last that was adopted last summer, this transformative transit action plan that is you know, folks focusing on those those major areas, fair yeah. coordination, mapping, transit and network planning. Um, and so we realized that if we're going to ask people to vote for, you know, more revenue, we have to demonstrate that we're going to give them a system that works for them. Yeah. You know, and just that's, to, that's yeah. the structure. Thank you, Therese. Um just so people can get a sense of some of these coordination problems, one listener writes in to say, I rely on transit to get from Daly City to San Jose for work. The discussion around the transfers is so important, particularly regarding cost and time transfers. I actually have to ride the Berryessa-Bart line from beginning to end around the opposite direction of the bay, despite the more direct Caltrain route. The more transfers made, the higher the price and the more opportunity for things to go wrong. My commute is two and a half hours one way, but I avoid the risk of being stranded at a transfer point and paying for four different systems versus three. There really needs to be more reliable transfers to create uh, better direct routes. I mean, these are really tough things. Marjorie also writes in to say, reductions in transit service undermine the state's climate-protecting greenhouse gas reduction goals and can be disastrous for transit-dependent riders who can't afford a car, don't have the physical ability to cycle where they need to go, can't work from home, and so forth. 
Yet, since most or all transit agencies rely so heavily on the fare box for revenue, it seems that most agencies will respond to fiscal challenges by reducing service, which impacts impacts most heavily the most vulnerable. Shouldn't public transit receive more state funding? Uh, What's the likelihood that MTC can persuade state legislators to improve and stabilize transit agency funding? So I feel like you've already addressed that, Therese. Um, Dan, I Uh, want to... Oh, go ahead. Oh, but but just to underwrite that point, um, you know, the, the, the third point I, I didn't wrap up with is while we're, you know, looking to sort of lift ourselves up with our own bootstraps at some point and need to demonstrate the, the capacity to do that, the state is an essential partner for us. And one of the things, you know, Alexis, that we need to do is um, work with the state to see if they can be essentially a bridge for providing additional resources to us while we sort out this really important question in the Bay Area and the state. You know, what what is the transit system post-COVID that we need to sustain? What does it look like? What is the funding that needs to be in place and who are the partners? But we're going to have to have the state be an essential Mm -hmm. funding partner for us in a bridging capacity, if nothing else, while we help to sort through these questions, because we can't afford for our transit systems just to collapse, right? Um, as we're trying to, you know, build back, right? And just so people know, the kind of fiscal cliff with federal dollars that we're talking about won't come at the same moment for every transit system because it has to do with how they spent that money. So it could be 2025 for BART, it could be 2027 for VTA. There's different ways that 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 money has been allocated, just as a a note for for listeners. Dan, um, you also cover lots of different things for KQED. We have experienced this extreme weather of the last uh, few weeks. We know that there are these kind of other risks that are coming down the line because of of climate change. Um, How can these agencies attempt to plan to kind of harden and make these systems more resilient at the same moment when they're also seeing all these problems with with ridership. And just it should be said, you know, a lot of this infrastructure is kind of old, uh, both the both the roads and the rails. And, and so there is a natural increase in some maintenance expenditures there, too. Do we have time for another show, Alexa? Yeah. Right. <laughs> hey, so um, listen, you're right that this is something that has to be done simultaneously. And, and um, you know, what each of these large agencies especially have is a, a, a capital improvement plan um, to to do that kind of hardening. I mean, BART is in the middle of a $3.5 billion uh, or programs uh, made possible by a $3.5 billion bond measure passed in 2016, Measure RR, that um, is is doing things like allowing them to uh, retrofit the Transbay tube and do some other major projects, including uh, trying to flood proof the uh, subway tunnels in uh, in downtown San Francisco, which are adjacent to some ancient um, streams that uh, mm. want to reassert themselves sometime. It So, I mean, I, I guess... You know, one of the things that Bart has said, and um, I, I don't think they're unique in this, is that going forward, we're going to have to have some kind of new revenue model, and that is going to have to include um, how to harden the systems 
as you, as you put it, as well as just run the trains. You know, some people, um, you know, uh, I mean, there, there's a, a certain groundswell, maybe not uh, major at this point, to consider making transit free to, to get more people on BART. Well, okay, that is a really interesting issue, but it's going to require completely rethinking how we pay for transit. It's not impossible. We pay for lots and lots of things that are very expensive, including our highways, for instance, um, and, and don't expect people to ne necessarily pay every time they use th those facilities. So, I mean, I, I guess that's a, a long-winded way to try to get to an answer. No, I mean, it, it kind of comes down to like, what is a city? You know, and like what yes. what do what do residents of a city expect to pay for collectively and what do they place uh, as a burden on individuals? And we're kind of saying, well, with the cars, we got to pay for it all collectively. And with transit, it's kind of still this this mix. Right. Yes. And, you know, I, I had a thought while I was preparing for the show that, you know, we have invested vast sums of money in the transit infrastructure and the systems that we have and all the people we employ to, to uh, keep those systems going. And even as difficult as the pandemic has been, uh, you know, the availability of the federal emergency cash has allowed these agencies to, to really keep running and in many cases actually offer more service than they did before. And it feels to me like uh, something of a tragedy to, to sort of make a sort of a an unspoken silent decision as a society to walk away from it. And in a way, that's kind of what it seems like we're doing with with people just not returning to to to, to the service that has made their lives easy and possible. Yeah, such a good point, Dan. We have been talking about the existential crisis facing various Bay Area transit agencies. We've been joined by Dan Brecky, editor and reporter with KQE News. Thank you so much for joining us, Dan. You're welcome. I've also been lucky to have Therese McMillan, the executive director of Metropolitan Transportation Commission and the Association of Bay Area Government. Such a great expert. Thank you so much, Therese. Thank you. Thank you so much to everyone who called in. Loved hearing your perspectives as well. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. 
we need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.